Welcome, my friends. This is David Emil to the Aligned Boss Tribe podcast for conscious creatives, business owners, aspiring spiritual bosses, and entrepreneurs in recovery. Our guest today is truly someone special. He's a UC Berkeley trained educational psychologist and consultant to Pixar on their Academy Award winning movie Inside Out. His blog on positive psychology, Shrunken Mind, has been named one of the top positive psychology blogs on the web by PostRank. The Daily Reviewer named Shrunken Mind one of the top 100 blogs on the internet. He's known for proven tools that teach real people uh, effective anger management skills with his online free online anger management class. Dr. John has been a practicing psychologist for over 15 years and hosted over 200 radio shows during prime time in the San Francisco Bay Area on positive psychology and self-improvement. He's offered numerous articles. His first book, Guide to Self, the Beginner's Guide to Managing Emotion and Thought was named Best Self-Help Book of 2007. I want you all to give a warm welcome to Dr. John Schinnerer. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege and a pleasure to have you here today. I'm really excited for the audience as I know a lot of the practical experience that you've seen and, and you've, you know, surely by seeing numbers and implementing things and getting results there's a unique perspective that you have that not many people can offer. So we're really, we're really pleased to have you here today. I'm psyched to be here. So I know you specialize in, you know, you've been a psychologist uh, for over 15 years and you do work with some women, but you primarily work mainly with men uh, as far as, as you like to say, peak performance from the, from the boardroom to the bedroom. And so we're talking about business, personal relationships, uh, and love relationships and so forth. And so that being said, I'd like to jump right in and ask you the following question to tee it off on that note. What does it mean to be an evolved man? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think that it, it's fascinating to me because I think that the the job description for men in marriage has changed rapidly over the last generation. And what I mean by that is women in the 70s started getting out into the workforce. They got more financial freedom. They got more political power. And what happened was their expectations for being in relationship changed. And now you've got both the man and the woman going out into the workforce, working long, hard hours and coming home. And honestly, I think both wanted the kind of traditional wife, someone that was there at home to make a meal, to take care of them, to listen to their stressors. And the women started evolving and expecting not only a good provider in their husband, but also this sort of lifelong romantic partner, someone that not only was emotionally aware, but emotionally communicative, someone that could be supportive, someone that could be empathetic, someone that could listen, someone that could speak with vulnerability. And the funny part of that is that we men, A, no one ever told us about this change in job description, and B, certainly right. no one ever trained us for it. And in fact, I think we've been socialized in exactly the opposite way. I mean, I tell my male clients that, look, I can eliminate two thirds of the emotional spectrum for you with two phrases. And if you think back to your childhood, you know, middle school, high school, if you showed too much fear or sadness, 
odds are someone, could be your dad, could be a coach, could be one of your friends or a peer, someone will say, stop being such a pussy. (laughs) And if you show too much love or joy or excitement, someone will usually say, dude, stop being so gay. And forgive the slurs, but that's how we were raised. That's how we were socialized. And if you're smart, you learn really quickly, I got to shut that shit off. Like that hurts. I don't want to hear that anymore. And so what men are left with is stress because there's some degree of pride in being stressed. I'm so busy. I'm successful. Look at me. I'm stressed. Or some degree of anger, irritation, frustration, annoyance, rage, whatever it is. Or we've got the mask that we put on, which is just, I'm not going to show anyone anything. I'm going to be stoic. Right. And it, it really screws us up as we move forward in life. So to answer your question, I I think the evolved male is someone that is traditionally masculine. So, you know, physically fit. I think that they can be assertive and speak up for their needs. I think that they're successful in the workplace. And then at the same time, I think that they've got emotional awareness. I think they can communicate. I think they can listen. Um, You know, one of the questions that I tell my clients is if your girlfriend or spouse is unloading on you and you know it's not about you let's say it's about work just ask her the question of sweetheart I, I see you're stressed I see you're frustrated what would you like me to do do you want me to just listen do you want me to try and solve it or do you just need a hug because if we have the answer to that question we're golden but here's the other thing I've noticed is that it's hard for us to just sit there and listen mm. partly because I think it brings up this internal discomfort in us, you know, we pick up her emotion and we want to get rid of it. Like we want to solve it for her. We want it to go away because it makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. So that's a long answer to your question. No, that was not even, that was perfect. That was succinct. I just want to, you're dropping so many gold nuggets and I want to stay on, on topic with these ideas that, 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 that what you're saying is giving birth to in my mind. Uh, but I want to pause quickly. I didn't want to text you and throw you off just make sure you're see if you can play with your connection a little bit it's kind of like sometimes a little slow like that and we want to see if if we can you know adjust it on that and maybe it'll help maybe it won't just to get it clear for these guys um but we'll move on okay sorry about that i'll take a look on this end it's technology you know how it is so you were you were doing you were delivering so well i didn't want to text you in the middle of that because it's what you're saying. I mean, this is real shit. We're so programmed to, you know, we get home and as males, we want to, you know, I've been in that position in a relationship before where we, we want to solve, we want to, we want to solve the problem and be the solver where sometimes we just need to be the listener. Um, and I, I surely failed miserably. at that. <laughs> well, I have two. I mean, it's a learning process. Dr. John. You there? Yes, I am. Oh, we, yeah, you're, you're cutting out pretty bad, brother. Oh, man. There you are. It's, it's, I don't know, we'll just keep going. Can we pause this for a second? Um, <laughs> can you edit it? Because I can just move into another room where I may have better internet access. Just go for it. Okay. See, my friends, so, you know, we always expect the unexpected. <laughs> so, you know, doing things like this, it's like we were talking yesterday. We we're having a discussion about, you know, what is a, what is a, what is a, 
what is a bad day? What is a challenging day? And we're talking about how we don't have bad days, but we might have challenging moments. And so things like things that you don't expect, you know, they come up and you go with the flow of them and, and you know, it happens. Yeah. I refer to these as curveballs. Yeah. Curveballs. And, and it's, I find it's, it's a lot easier and more fun when we can dance and say, well, isn't that interesting? Kind of just dance around it and play. Okay. Let's, let's see. And make it kind of like a game or a fun little adventure as corny as that sounds. Uh, it seems to huh, get a lot more positive momentum going than going, fuck, fuck the recording is Dr. John. We got him on the line. And he's so good. And it's got to go. And oh my God. Right. So uh, no pressure. So that's, I thought that was a good uh, teaching moment there for that. Cause Absolutely. I remember I used to present at a continuation high school and I would go there once a month for about four years. And these were kids that had failed out of traditional high schools for a variety of reasons, drugs, falling behind on units, pregnancy, so on. And you talk about a challenging group to present to. I would go in there and probably a third to two thirds were stoned when I would go in there. Half would have earbuds in one ear, half would be ADHD, somewhere ODD. And it was just, I kind of learned to, to roll with it, to let go of my own agenda while presenting. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So are you, uh, you in your new habitat there? I'm situated. Uh, so you bring up a really interesting point about this whole identity that we've created in society about being productive, being productive, being the producer. And so we can get into this neurology, this identity, this, this identity that has a, a consequential, you know, a neurology that goes with it of this addicted to stress, kind of noble, noble struggler identity. It's noble to be stressed and busy, right? So how does, how do we, how do we begin to change, mindfully, consciously change that identity to be able to be that person that our families and our loved ones need us to be and be that top producer? Well, yeah, I think it's a great question. I, and it's one of the things that's driven me lately, that idea that it's not sufficient to be successful at work, that my goal for my clients is really for them to be successful and happy at work and at home. Because if you're just one of those, if you're just successful at work or you're just successful at home, I would argue that that's insufficient to, for true happiness. And, you know, I've got a client, I had a client uh, last year that was a very successful businessman, um, mid fifties, had amassed quite a bit of wealth and was making more money than he really needed. And he was working himself to death and he was taking medication for blood pressure and GI issues and migraines and anxiety and sleep. And, you know, his doctor said, look, if you don't stop this, you're going to die. And, you know, that was the point at which he started working with me. And interestingly, when I drilled down to it, I, I think that part of it is really his need to prove himself to his father's voice in his own head that, you know, his dad was kind of merciless in driving him, that it was always about doing, doing, doing. And if you weren't doing something, you were lazy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had to work with him well, for about six months. But, you know, the, the foundation of it really is awareness. Mm -hmm. So an awareness that something's off, an awareness that maybe you don't need to have your sympathetic nervous system kicked into high gear all the time, that, that fight or flight, the fight or flight freeze response, that maybe that's not the best mode for you 100% of the time. I mean, I think it's appropriate at times. 
I think that most of the clients that I deal with aren't able to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system at will, which is the relaxation response. And ideally for a stress response, it's supposed to go on, off, on, off, on, off, not just on for 30 years. And most of the people I deal with have been on for years and years and years. So, I mean, as far as stress goes, I think that, you know, there's mindsets that you can adopt around stress that are helpful. There was a study that was done a few years ago. They asked 30,000 people, how much stress have you been under the past year? And do you think stress is good for you or bad for you? So obviously the people that said, I'm under a tremendous amount of stress, they were more likely to die in the next eight years, 43% more likely. And that's kind of the traditional story that we've been fed by research and media for years. Stress bad for you, stress kill you. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I think there's some truth to that. But when you dig down into the data more, that was true only for people that said they were under a tremendous amount of stress and saw stress as bad for them, as harmful. Those people that said, I'm under a great deal of stress and stress is good for me. Stress is activating. It's energizing. Stress is my body getting me ready for a challenge had no negative impact of stress. Isn't that interesting? So we think it's more how much stress you're under combined with the mindset that you have around stress. So I think, you know, mindset is a big thing, just turning towards stress, welcoming it and saying, okay, this is my body getting me ready for a challenge. Because both are true. I mean, stress is bad for you. Stress is good for you. They're, they're both true. What mindset do you choose to adopt to help you the most with stress? Now, I think given that, I think you can also go too far with stress regardless of your mindset. Right. As you know, my earlier example indicates, I think some people literally are working themselves to death to prove something to someone or maybe to be a martyr. Um, and so I, I think that you know, there's, it's a multi-pronged approach in the sense that you want to adopt the right mindset. I think there's logistical or realistic accommodations you want to make in your life. And then there's things like mindfulness, there's relaxation techniques that you can adopt and learn to turn down the volume on stress. Absolutely. I mean, you, it's really interesting how science, what we're seeing is reflecting a lot of what we thought to be true in the studies of what, what people hold to believe, whatever they believe or expect tends to, it tends to happen and it tends to, it tends to manifest for them physically. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the more I've done this, the more I've realized the truth and the weight of that. And, you know, it's funny, I've got a, a few clients that are pretty, pretty damn depressed and so I'll tell them about this mindset research. Dr. John, I'm sorry. Can you, you cut out pretty bad there. Can you say that one more time? What was pretty damn depressed? I don't want anyone to miss that. Oh, I've got several clients that are really depressed. And I've told them about this mindset research because there's research in several areas, which is compelling. And I'll tell them that a lot of this mindset research is about the placebo effect, which is that if you believe something will help you, it will help you. But the, the opposite of that is also true. There's a nocebo effect, which is if you don't believe something's going to help you, guess what? It ain't going to help you. Right. Yeah. I mean, psychoneuroimmunology, you know, the science of mind-body healing, Norman Cousins started all the way back in the 30s to the psychoneurophysiology stuff that's going on now in the Ivy League schools to me is it's so fascinating. Where do you, you know, side, side shoot-off question – how do you see 
you know, psychoneuroimmunology, this is a fancy long way of saying that the science of the mind body connection for all those out there and mind body, not only in responses to practical things, but mind body healing. How do you see that changing? Because we're in this in this time of exponential progression where we've progressed more in the last year than we have the last 10 years, more in the last 10 years than the last million years, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you see these sciences as we've seen them launch into super exponential growth, even in the, just the last five years, how, where do you see that affecting and, and adding to a practice like yours in the next 10 years? Well, you know, I, first let me start off by saying, I think Rene Descartes, the philosopher, the French philosopher really screwed us several hundred years ago by saying, I think therefore I am. And I can tell you, I used to pride myself on being really smart and a good student. And I geeked out on that statement. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think therefore I am like, I'm all about my thoughts. My thoughts are everything that I am. And that was so wrong in the sense that he disconnected mind from body and did us a huge disservice. Now, you know, fast forward, you know, coming out of Cal, Cal really drills into you that everything you say has to be backed up by research studies, which you know, research can kind of lag some ancient contemplative practices that have been around for 2,500 years that have a pretty good track record. And so the longer I've done this, the more I've realized that if something's been around for that long, there's probably some truth to it. Um, now, as far as where these areas are going, I mean, you know, mindfulness, John, John Kabat-Zinn brought over mindfulness to the West probably 50 years ago and started doing research on it. So there's a tremendous amount of research backing that up. Um, and the results have been pretty astonishing. The, the cool thing is that it's bled over into other areas. For instance, the work that Kristen Neff is doing on self-compassion, which is proving to be more powerful than self-esteem. There's work on loving kindness meditation, which I think is tremendously powerful. And, and so I think we're going to get more and more of these tools that will be borne out by research which will help more people to accept, understand, and practice them. And so I really think we're at the beginning of a tidal wave, a, a shift in the zeitgeist of what people will accept and what they're willing to practice. Absolutely. It is an amazing time. So I want to circle back. Uh, we just had to, had to die. I knew you'd have a, a <laughs> I knew you have a valuable bunch of perspectives on, on those topics. So Let's get back to, let's bring it back down for some people, for some of the audience, for some of the guys in the audience. So we're talking about becoming mindful. We're talking about having beliefs. When we get a momentum of belief going, we tend to see the results in that area. And let's take it, let's bring it back for guys in, in, the, in the context of, of having fulfillment in personal relationships, having fulfillment in each area of life as the whole person to do that. How do we take, you know, we were talking about the socialization of men and how we've been brought up to be tough and all this. How do we begin? What are some steps as we, as we redefine masculinity, right? Because that's really what we're doing. How do we take those masks off? I, and I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. I think part of it is having an awareness that that's the right direction to go for us as men. I think part of it is giving yourself permission 
to go in that direction. I think part of it is being willing to explore how you feel about things. Because, you know, the reason I got into psychology, or one of the many reasons, is that I felt that the mind and the heart, the body, were one of the last untapped, explored frontiers. And the funny thing is, I think for many men, it's scary as hell to really tap into how you feel. And I mean, that was me 20, 30 years ago. It scared the crap out of me. Because, you know, here's these these really, I mean, I knew I was a smart guy, right? But what I also knew was the dumbest, most embarrassing, most shameful shit I've done in my life was when my emotional mind was in charge of me, mm. when I was angry, when I was sad, when I was anxious, when I was excited, when I was bored. And, you know, I, I talked, I've talked to many people who are working with addiction issues and it's my belief that emotions underlie every trigger that we have. Absolutely. And, and so I think that, you know, you got to be aware of it. You got to be willing to go there. You have to make a conscious decision to go there. And then you got to start with a foundational practice like mindfulness. Because when I was younger, I used to look at my thoughts, what's going on in my head to try and figure out how I felt. Well, you know, the truth is that emotions are embodied, which means that the vast majority of emotions take place below the head. You know, there's a little bit that, you know, like for embarrassment, your cheeks will get red, for instance, but most of it takes place in our body. So you have to be willing and able to stay in the present moment long enough and pay attention to what's going on in your body to figure out what you're feeling in the moment. And we know from research that most of our attention, most of our time, our mental time is spent in the past and the future, and typically a negative past or a negative future, which means that if you're not here, you're not aware you're not here. And if you're not here, you don't know what the hell you're feeling. And so, you know, part of it's training your mind to spend more time in the present moment. Part of it's training your attention to figure out what's happening in your body. For instance, what's my heart rate doing? What's my stomach doing? Where's the muscle tension in my body? What's my jaw doing? Where's the blood flowing in my body? Is it, you know, am I getting angry? So my blood is, fl is flowing to my fists and my feet to prepare me to attack? Is my chest getting tight because I'm getting anxious, stressed, or nervous? Um, and so, you know, the more you can tune into this, the more you train yourself to automatically pick up on these physiological cues. Right. And the more you know right away, okay, I'm getting a little bit annoyed. And I, you know, I've talked with a lot of people, over 10,000 people about anger, for example. And one of the things I'll always tell them is you need to get ahead of anger. You need to be aware when you're at like a two or a three on a 10 point scale of anger, where you're getting slightly annoyed, a little bit frustrated. Because if you get on it then, then you can name it. You can speak to it and say, hey, honey, I'm getting a little bit frustrated. Like, it bugs me when you come home late. Rather than not being aware of it, in it just adding another drop of right. negative emotion to your bucket, and then, you know, three days later, you go volcanic because there's been an accumulation of these negative drops, and you kind of, you blow up, you get angry at the wrong person, wrong time, wrong manner. Yeah, it really seems to be about really just coming back to mindfulness. And it's funny because that was literally the next topic that I was going to go into was how it seems to be in these traditional gender roles 
more and, and you know more modeled to us and uh, more acceptable for men to be anger angry in in, a, in the traditional gender roles you know it's it's more acceptable for guys to be like ah you know and, and and all this kind of stuff and it's interesting too because what you brought up before about your client he saw that he saw something modeled from his dad and, and and well not just that but he saw what his dad said he needed to be to get love right mm-hmm. and so it's like it's interesting because so many people probably have a similar thing. I need to be this way, you know, cause we're all looking for love and that's, you know, as we develop our personalities, we, we do what we do, whether it's being a, as you know, whether it's being aloof or being angry and powerful power guy or whatever it is to get love in the world. And so it's, it's interesting how anger can be one of those identities. Um, and you know, it's this, this multi multifaceted topic. And so you've got like, how do, how do you begin to assist people who are holding on to anger and grudges to as you're teaching as you're assisting them to understand just awareness in general how do you begin to work with them and how do you recommend people who are new to or even resistant to the idea of forgiveness to step into it and what does forgiveness really mean in this context you know, it's funny. I, my mind was going to, I, I got asked to do a, an anger management reality TV show a few years ago. And I was doing an interview on Skype, I guess at the time with the executive producer and the producer, and they were asking me questions and they're like, yeah, we're going to throw a bunch of angry sports coaches into a house and you're going to help them get less angry. And I was like, okay, I'm not liking this idea already. And then they're like, so show me what you would do like to really get in someone's face to challenge their anger. <laughs> like you don't understand what I do. They're angry. I'm not going to get in their face. That's the worst thing you could do. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting because part of it is I think giving men permission to feel um, and while still being masculine. And I think that's the key is to let them know that, look, you can still be a man. In fact, I would say you're a better version of yourself and of a man when you are in touch with how you feel and you learn how to manage those feelings. Cause you know, to me, that's, that's a desirable man is someone that can get angry, but deal with their anger in a constructive manner. They can be appropriately assertive. They can speak up for their needs so that they don't have to get to that volcanic spittle sending rage inducing guitar smashing rage. Um, but you know, how do you do that? You know, part of it to me, mindfulness is the foundational skill for almost everything that we're working on because it builds awareness. It builds attentional control. It increases the frequency of positive emotions. It, you know, induces relaxation, decreases anxiety, depression, anger, that sort of thing. So that that's kind of the starting point because a lot of these people don't have awareness. And I, I've talked to a lot of people who say, you know, wow, I got really pissed off. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and the guitar was smashed against the wall. And I was like, wow, who did that? And, you know, people are cowering in the corner saying you did. So, you know, that's kind of the extreme of this kind of blackout rage. But um, you know, I think part of it is really presenting myself as someone that is masculine so that they can believe that, okay, so I can be masculine too, while not, while managing my anger, while learning how to 
to actually feel sadness, while learning how to feel hurt, while being okay with feeling anxious or nervous. Because a lot of us have suppressed those emotions for 20, 30 years. So all these emotions get funneled into anger. And you know, one of the things I'll tell my guys is, look, when you get angry, the first question I want you to ask yourself is, did someone just hurt my feelings? Because 90% of the time, the answer is, yeah, someone hurt your feelings. And it's a much different conversation. If you can come at, let's say, your, your spouse, if you, if you approach her with, um, hey, honey, you know, it really hurts my feelings when you tell me I'm not a man. Rather than responding to that with anger and yelling, those are two completely different conversations. And one has a far better chance of a good outcome than the other. Right. Because I can tell you when, you know, if we're angry at each other and we're yelling at each other, nothing I say gets into your head. Right. And nothing you say gets into mine because that's the way anger works. Anger is only trying to externalize blame. I, I want to blame you I'm for what you've right. done wrong. Yeah. And I'm going to make damn sure that you understand how right I am. And ultimately I want you to say, wow, John, I, you are so right. I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. And that's never going to happen. Isn't it amazing when we can, uh, in the relationships, have this new, almost secret strategy, where isn't it interesting when we can start off and have this idea that says, what if I, I strategically go into this, instead of trying to be right, trying to reach an understanding with her. And of course, that's when you're heated or whatever. You have to re <laughs> I have to bring myself down and say, okay, let's, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to reach an understanding with you. Yeah, there's a great quote from Terry Reel, who's one of the best couples counselors in the country, who says, would you rather be right or would you rather be married? Ha! Yeah, that's classic. Um, and, you know, and I think you, you speak to the, a great point where one of the things I'll teach my clients is that there's two types of conversation. The first one that we're well-versed in is debate, where I've got a point of view. I think my point of view is right. I want to get you to understand my point of view and agree that my point of view is right. So when you're talking, I'm just listening for holes in your logic so I can pick away and show you the holes in your logic to prove I'm right. So there's a winner and there's a loser. Right. And that's where we typically come from. But there's this other type of conversation, which I would call more consultative, maybe curious, where your goal is just to understand where the other person is coming from, what's motivating them, what's their perspective. And there's no right or wrong. There is no winner. It's just about being seen, heard, and validated. So kind of hearing the other person and understanding them. And that's a much better model for a relationship. Dr. John? Yeah. Are you there? Oh, yeah. You cut after a much, better a much better model for, and then I lost you. Oh, it's, it's a much better model for a relationship. You know, because often in a relationship, you're going to have disagreements where there is no right. And, you know, one, there's research that shows that 67% of disagreements in a relationship are unresolvable. So if you really stop to consider that, that's amazing. That means that two thirds of the stuff you fight about, there's never going to be a solution. So either you better get used to 
having disagreements that are that you can't solve or find someone else. Right. Absolutely. I want to see if I can tip this a little to improve our connection. That might work. So, you know, this is interesting because we've got, I see anger talked about in this context a lot, mostly from external things and mostly from this idea of I'm still holding a grudge. I'm still angry about something that happened in my past and really not, you know, understanding the idea of real forgiveness, which took me 35 years to get (laughs) was it was a situation where it wasn't, you know, behave this way and then I'll love you. Right. That was, that was conditional love. And then somehow, you know, I was ready. I was a vibrational match to the answer. And I had learned that, oh, well, what if, what if I could just love you for who you are and laugh at your quirks? Cause I've got them too. And you don't need to behave this way in order for me to love you. Well, so that external, that anger or that annoyance or grudge or whatever you want to call it, true forgiveness for the external extinguished all that anger that I ever had or carried. Then there's the, but that's the other, you know, and I wish that for everybody, but there's the other side of it too, that is not talked about very much. And it's, you know, it's talked about in the Bhagavad Gita where, you know, and we, and we, and we reference all sorts of, you know, ancient texts that, that, that the teachings in them are showing to be scientifically proven now. And, and one of the interesting things is in the Bhagavad Gita, it talks about unfulfilled desires turning into anger, which kind of, you know, steps into that, a, a territory that many might not want to talk about with addictions and, and different things like this. But how do you see that coming up with people with, you know, uh, whether it's obsessive compulsive addictions or things, you know, this focusing on this lower chakra, desirous, lust, maybe even lustful kind of stuff. And so in these ancient texts, it's saying, if you keep playing in these unfulfilled desire, you know, that this world and you have these unfulfilled desires, it'll create tremendous anger and irritability. What's your take on that? Yeah. And I think, I think you're onto something. I think that, um, you know, one of the skills I teach is appropriate assertiveness, partly because I think we're very poor. Most of us are very poor at identifying what we need and then speaking up for what we need. And then we don't get our needs met over and over and over again, which creates annoyance and frustration. And if you let it go long enough, it'll boil up into anger and rage. Um, I, I think that depression uh, can one of the the definitions of depression is anger internalized. So I think you know we've got an epidemic of depression, particularly with our younger people. And part of it is I think that they're angry about things that they can't speak about. And if you want to go to you know kind of ancient traditions, you know, and talk about the chakras, that third chakra, the throat chakra, you know, there's a lot of people that come in and they say, you know, I've got this problem with my throat. I've got a frog in my throat. I've got a sore throat. You know, they've got some sort of issue with their throat. And one of the things I'll ask them is, so, you know, to what extent are there truths that you are unable to speak? Uh-huh. Because that's, that's what it would indicate. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, so, and you had asked about forgiveness earlier. And so if I can circle back to that, um, that's a fascinating subject to me because I think that 
forgiveness gets a bad rap. I think a lot of people think that if I forgive someone, it means that I approve of what he did to me. Right. It means that I'm supposed to forget what he did to me. And that's not true that, you know, you forgive to help yourself. You forgive to get, to let go of old stale anger that we all have because we're human and no one's really taught us how to let go of it. Forgiveness doesn't need to be done face to face. It can be done, probably should be done most times just in your mind. It's a daily practice. It doesn't mean that you approve of what happened to you. It's just a way to help yourself. And, you know, Fred Luskin from Stanford did some amazing research on this where he broke down forgiveness into some some steps that you can follow and identified some common obstacles that we run across when we're trying to forgive. And then he went and taught parents who had lost their children to bombings in Ireland and to gang violence in inner cities here in the US and got them to forgive the murderers of their children. And they received a huge benefit, a huge list of health benefits from this practice of forgiveness, you know, less anger, less depression, um, better functioning immune system, to name a few. And it was funny, I, I remember, I, I've taught a lot of people about forgiveness, but there's layers to it. So there's forgiving other people, there's allowing others to forgive you. There's forgiving yourself, which is often one of the more difficult levels. Um, and then I, I remember I had an experience probably 20 years ago, I was a school psychologist and I had a, a teacher called me and said, would you talk to one of my students? She suffered a death in her family recently, and she's been crying for three days. And I said, sure, you know, send her in. I had no idea what I was going to say, because it turned out it was an infant cousin that had died from sudden infant death syndrome. What do you say to that? Like, I, I had no idea. How do you alleviate someone's grief when that's not even really the goal? Um, so she came in and she started telling me what happened. And I realized pretty quickly that she was furious with God, higher power, whatever you want to call it, but she was Christian. And so, you know, we talked for a while and I said, you know, have you considered that maybe you're angry with God? And she was like, oh no, I couldn't do that. That would be a sin. And I said, well, I, I get that. And, you know, if you believe that God had some hand in making you, then he also made your emotions. And, you know, if he's all knowing, then he knows you're angry at him. And if he's forgiving, then he's already forgiving you. And his, your anger at him is like a drop of rain in a rainstorm. It's, it's not that big a deal. He can handle it. And so I, I basically just gave her permission to be pissed off at God. And, you know, the next day I got a call from her mom and she said, you know, are you the psychologist that talked to my daughter? And I said, yes, I am thinking I was going to get in trouble for speaking about God in the public school system. Um, but she said, I just want to thank you because my daughter came out of the room, her room for the first time in a week or two and, you know, had a slight smile on her face. So I don't know what you said, but it was really helpful. Beautiful. And it, it made me realize that there's times in life when tragic things happen. And, you know, our emotional mind is kind of a child. It's, <laughs> I think of it as like a five or six year old, um, and it doesn't make a lot of rational sense at times. So when there's something tragic that happens where there's no human to blame, I think many times our minds will go to a higher power because we're just pissed and we want to blame someone or something. Yeah. And to me, that makes complete sense. But, you know, we got to be aware of it before we can right. address it. Well, this is what triggered, you know, I heard, I heard 
Dr. Wayne Dyer, before he passed, I heard him ask guidance. I heard him ask uh, Abraham Hicks. I heard him ask Esther Hicks. So I have this thing with my dad and so forth and so on. And it, and it, and she, he, he was holding all this anger. And she said, you not forgiving your dad or letting him be just loving him for who he was, not having to behave a certain way, you holding him that way, that's just an excuse for you to stay out of alignment. And when I heard that, it just cracked. It was like the crack in the wall and the whole thing just started to come down. And so, yeah, so that, you know, I think that that's what it is. It's not, you know, it's forgiving others to for, to, to, for ourselves for selfish reasons. So we can be in alignment. Like I value my alignment, my flow, my connection with source with my highest values. I want to feel amazing. Right. And so I'm going to forgive someone, you know, I, as, as one of my own mentors, David T.S. Wood says, I want to try to practice immediate forgiveness as much as possible just for my own self, just so I can stay in alignment. Cause even if I might be, you know, in that, you know, justified quote unquote in this or that, it's like, I just want to stay in alignment. So I'm going to forgive. So that's, that's interesting. And that's a great, actually a great couple of stories you shared there. Yeah. And, and that's what the, the studies show is that by practicing forgiveness daily, and you know, when you first start, you have to go way back into the past, but it takes a little bit longer. But when you practice forgiveness daily, you become a more forgiving person in the moment. So stuff that used to bother you in the moment now just kind of runs off your back like water off a duck. Yeah, because you get rewards from it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So let's pivot. And let's, so, you know, we have guys out there who are stepping into this world of, of, of mindfulness, these new habits, you know, everybody's at a different stage, right? Of course. And so when searching for a partner, let's talk about that single person, maybe, you know, when searching for a partner, talk to us about this whole idea of what people need in a relationship versus what they want and how does who we're being affect that? Okay, great question. Let me give you a concrete example. What I want in a relationship is someone that's stunningly gorgeous, ridiculous figure, who is kind. What I need is someone that is emotionally aware, communicative, values-driven, compassionate. I mean, and they're two different lists. And, you know, the difference is what I looked for when I was 19 versus what I looked at when I was 45 or what I looked for. And, you know, anyone that's looking, what I, what I always tell my clients is come up with your list of what you must have in a relationship. And it should be, you know, I would say five items, give or take. And then what are the deal killers for you? And then be really, really crystal clear about those two lists. And then you know, one of the things that, I mean, the things that I need in a relationship are things like integrity, honesty, emotional awareness, emotional management skills. I'm not looking for a woman who is emotionally volatile. That's exhausting to me. <laughs> and I don't want to go there with her. And, you know, the woman that I'm with now, who's amazing, I've been with her for three years, is she's a therapist and, you know, her communication skills are ridiculous. Her emotional management skills are crazy. And it's unlike anything I've ever been in before. I remember early on, I was I was at her house and, you know, I was kind of grouchy. I was out of sorts. 
And I went home for the night and I texted her and I said, Hey, you know, I'm sorry, I'm grouchy. I'm just in kind of a grouchy mood, has nothing to do with you. And she called me up and she said, Hey, look, my job is to accept all of you, the negative and the positive. And I was just like, fuck, (laughs) what? Like no one's ever told me that before. And, and I was stunned. And I think that was one of the points where I started to fall in love with her. Um, but you know, one of the things that when I was dating after my divorce, I, at first I was just, you know, you're kind of a kid in a candy shop and you're just kind of experiencing things. And then I wanted to get a little more serious about it. And I realized that one of the problems I was having was that I was feeling things too deeply and getting attached too quickly Mm -hmm. to women I was dating. Mm -hmm. And so you got to know where you are in terms of how emotionally sensitive are you? How deeply do you feel? So since I'm high on that scale, I was like, okay, I need to turn this back a little bit. I can relate. And so what I started doing was I was like, okay, I'm just going to go out for coffee. I'm going to go out for a half an hour. I'm going to just have a conversation. I'm going to tell myself I'm an intensely curious person. And I just want to get to know their story. I have no expectations about getting a phone number, getting laid, getting married, being in a relationship, none of that. I'm just curious. I just want to get to know their story. I'll share some of my stories. If it's a fit, we can go further. Um, But one of the things that I did, which, you know, I'm not sure I've really shared this on air before, but, you know, I had been in a couple relationships after being divorced and I realized that I was too sensitive and I wanted to kind of turn the dial down on that. So I decided that I would start to date and date multiple people at the same time but be very upfront about it with all of them and just say, you know, look, I'm not looking to be in a long-term relationship. I'm just looking to date. If you want to sign up for that, great. If not, I completely understand. Because my thought was they're adults. They might be doing the same thing. You know, if we're upfront about it, that's fine. And, And it worked well. And I probably did that for about, I don't know, four to six months. And then like clockwork, I I met this woman who I'm in a relationship with now. And as soon as I met her, I was like, wow, I don't want to date anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that, that little exercise really helped with kind of turning down the volume on that emotional sensitivity and preventing me from getting too attached too quickly. That's too funny. We have such a, such a, um, Cor- cor- there's so many correlations here because I've, I have similarly experienced that very same idea and, and not fully I, – I think I've danced with it and stepped into it for a little bit but maybe didn't trust my intuition with it. Uh, and so that's, that's really cool to hear. And you also teed up the next, uh, the next thing perfectly. And, and I, what I was going to say was when we're searching for a partner – it's like, do you see a correlation to people not growing and progressing as individuals, right? And so they attract the same type of person they say they don't want to attract in a relationship over and over, right? Because I see how amazing what you did to change, but do you, do you see that come up for them? Yeah, I think that you know there is some truth to the fact that we're looking, not even looking, that subconsciously we date people that are like our mother. Um, and we're trying to heal those early relationships. And, you know, being in a relationship is a great chance to do that. 
I think to do that, you have to have someone that's willing to grow because in my marriage, you know, I think that there was willingness to grow on the part of one person, not so much on the other. Um, and that gets problematic. And I've heard that in many, many stories where, you know, one partner decides to grow and the other one's sort of like, love me for who I am. And then the growth becomes um, one-sided and that person begins to grow away from their partner. Whereas if you can grow, you don't even have to grow in the same ways, but if you're willing to grow and keep growing and experiencing and saying yes to life, I think it gives you a much better chance of success than if one person just kind of shuts down and says, I don't need to grow anymore. I'm fine. Right. Right. But would you say who we're being, we have to be that person who's consistently growth to attract that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that, you know, I, I like the idea of working on yourself in order to attract the right person. I think that having clarity on what you want in a relationship is helpful. And then I think there's some issues that you need to be in relationship in order to work out the issues. Right. Like, you know, you can't work on, you know, speaking up for yourself and what you need sexually if you're by yourself. You can't work right. on how do I communicate with a lover if you're by yourself? Right. Fair enough. Absolutely. Well, I, I have so many questions. We have such good synchronicity with these, with these ideas and co-creating and taking these thoughts maybe to new little places and in ways they haven't you know been done before. And, and we could go on for another hour easy. I have so many more questions, but I realize we're, we're somewhat coming to the top of the hour. So I'm going to shift gears abruptly here and talk about, I want to, because I want to talk about this idea of peak performers. And I want to talk about, you know, this framework of, you know, positive past versus negative past, positive present versus negative present, and positive future versus negative future. And so with that in mind, in your experience, what are some of the habits of a peak performer? I think in general, peak performers have They've adopted and learned some of the skills that we've talked about, forgiveness, for example, mindfulness. Um, I think that they also spend a lot of their mental time in the positive future. So they're generating ideas, they're solving problems, they're looking ahead and seeing what they want and how to get there. I think they spend a good chunk of their time in a positive present. So they're realistically optimistic. So they know how to interpret good and bad situations in order to manage their emotional state. Um, and then I think they spend some of their time in a positive past where they can reflect on the good things that have happened to them in their past. And, you know, granted, we're going to have these negative emotions that come up and threaten to pull us into that negative space. But I, I think that in general, they've learned to manage the emotions well enough that they don't spend the majority of their time in that negative emotional space. Right. And how do you see in that, in that EI, they've got the self-awareness, they've got this emotional intelligence. Where do peak performers, how do, how do you see in your practice? How do you see how they work through things versus the person who, as many of us and many people listening to this, this call, this show, this episode are self-critical and how does self-criticism and perfectionism to a fault, how do you see the difference between what a peak performer does and what somebody who is just self-critical to a fault, which of course we know typically is probably from someone 
having to, you know, validate and justify everything they say or, or do growing up. I mean, we know where that comes from typically, but once we've gotten through that and the awareness of where that came from, they still find themselves too hard on themselves. How do they step into being a, a peak performer in every area and less of a, of a self-critic and perfectionist? Okay. It's a, well, it's a great question and there's a lot to it. So let me give you a couple ideas that I have off the top of my head. One is the daily practice of self-forgiveness, I think is critical to letting go of some of that perfectionism, the need to be perfect. I think the other piece to it is self-compassion, which is the work by Kristen Neff. Um, and self-compassion is really a great antidote to that brutal inner critic that we all have. And, you know, it's, it, there's this idea of the first voice and the second voice. And the first voice is your mind, kind of that drunk monkey, that annoying roommate, whatever you want to think of it as. But the first voice is, you know, you screw up on a test and your first voice says, ah, you're such a dumbass. I love the idea that it's the second voice that is you that is more powerful. And the second voice responds to that first voice with something like, hey, you know, no big deal. It's a mistake. We'll get past it. Pick yourself up. Try again. Dust yourself off. Mistakes are one of the ways that we learn. And, and so I, I think that the peak performers have mastered this idea of self-compassion and they, they can go back and forth. So they can use the inner critic to motivate themselves at times, but they also have the ability to shift into self-compassion. And, you know, you can think of it as how would you speak to a five-year-old if a five-year-old made a mistake? Or if your best friend were suffering from the same problem, what would you tell your best friend? Now say that to yourself. Well said, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pieces of it and because to me, it all comes down to emotional management because we're all going to suffer failure. We're all going to suffer heartache. We're all going to suffer pain and loss in this life. That's inevitable. That's part of the ticket for the game called life. The question to me is really, how do we become more resilient? How do we bounce back from those negative incidents more quickly with more energy and more wisdom than we had before? And so, you know, part of it's self-compassion, part of it's self-forgiveness, part of it is mindfulness to be aware of how you are feeling. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of other steps to it as well, but those are the ones that come to mind right now. Absolutely. When we talk, when, when people talk about fear of success, right, many times it's really the fear of the responsibility of success. Would you agree with that or disagree and break it down if you would? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there's there can be many reasons to it. I think that fear of responsibility, fear of giving up your time, um, you might fear um, threats to your relationship. Like, let's say you're a great relationship in a great relationship, and you are looking to become a speaker. Well, more women might come at you. Mm -hmm. um, so, can you withstand that's that increase in attention, that greater spotlight, if you will? Um, and yeah, I think that we're, we tend to be complacent. We tend to live in comfort zones and it's scary as hell to break out of that. And so most people are reluctant to do that. Yeah. I, well, I mean, we, as we've said, you know, I really see, it's interesting because this whole world of personal growth and development and success from the, the old school of motivational speaking to some of <laughs> 
more, more, more well-rounded. Some of the things we're learning these days and this whole idea of, you know, am I going to, am I going to, am I going to move forward? Basically focusing on basically, hold on one sec. I'm sorry. I'm getting a, a thing coming in here. Uh, basically, my alignment and my joy is on the other side of, the, of that whole, you know, getting uncomfortable. You know, these thought leaders and authors and speakers talk about, oh, just, you know, get uncomfortable. And your, 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 your only success is on the other side of that. And then we have this other side of the teaching that's talking about stay in your joy, follow your bliss. And so I, I feel like uh, it's kind of a balance of the two where a lot of times my highest alignment goes by how I feel, right? Does this feel good to me? But we have to take it in context. Like feeling good, it might not feel comfortable. In other words, it might not be pleasurable, but it'll bring me joy once I get over, when I get out of my comfort zone and finally do this thing that I said I was gonna do, it'll bring me long-term joy. It might not be short-term pleasure, i.e. the whole getting out of your comfort zone, but it's gonna be, that's really where my, so sometimes our alignment really is on the other side of something uncomfortable. So I think it's an interesting discussion, you know, from always just get uncomfortable. Sometimes I don't think that's the case because if what I've found is that if we're not a vibrational, if our desire doesn't feel good to us, then it's efforting that isn't going to go anywhere. But when the desire feels good to us, then it's like it's inspired action. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think you're on, you're on point. Yeah. So, what does radical responsibility mean to you? Radical responsibility. Well, in in my world, I think that it entails taking responsibility for your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. And what I see frequently is people that get angry that want to push off responsibility for how they feel onto others. And I think one of the main steps that you can take is just to say, hey, this is how I feel. This is my responsibility. No one else can change this for me. So I've got to take the steps that I need to, to address this issue. Dr. John. Now, yeah. Are you there? I think, I think the good news is when we do, when we click the post-production on this audio, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's going to clean up all the chops. So when they hear it on the other end, it'll be good. I hope just so. Lost on the end there. Um, but yeah, so the ability to respond in, in all areas, I think is the willingness, I think is where you were going with that. Yeah. When I think that, you know, that's, it's kind of that victim mentality versus being the hero of your own story. And, you know, I, the victim mentality is is tough um, because I think those are people that are foisting responsibility off from themselves onto life, for example. And granted, there are people that have been through a lot of crap. So I, I don't mean to take that away from anyone, but I've also dealt with people that have been through tremendous tragedy and horrific circumstances and worked with them to become the hero of their own story, which radically transforms how they look at life and how they show up to life. Absolutely. We've got the Oprah's of the world who things mm -hmm. like that have happened and it's devastating. And then things like that have happened and they've become, you know, a voice for and created so much change in the world. It really is. It's like we have these events that happen to us 
And it's the meaning we give and frame those events. And sometimes like me, I had to go back and reframe a bunch of events because I was a story maker upper. <laughs> yep, that's right. And we all yeah, right? I had these stories, you know, and I saw, wow, that was not even trying. I made this story up about this event. And then I carried that story that became what? It became my identity. And this identity and that identity didn't even serve me whatsoever. So it's, yeah, I think it's interesting, man. It's fascinating once people can get that and they can begin to reframe. What, what you know, we're coming to the top of the hour here. Uh, I want to respect your time. So as a final kind of cap off, what does, this is the Aligned Boss Tribe podcast. So what does alignment mean for you? Alignment to me means acting in accordance with your deepest values. And, you know, I, I like the idea of life being kind of like a bullseye. And there's a lot on the periphery of the bullseye that we can get distracted by. Shiny objects, fame, wealth. But when you dig down to the center of the bullseye, that's where your deepest held values are. And the more that you can act in alignment with those values, the more that you can have a meaningful life or meaningful work, the happier you are. And we know from research that success follows happiness, not the other way around. So I think that happiness in general is, I don't know if we can say it's a goal, but I think it's worthwhile to learn tools to make yourself experience more frequent positive emotions. Absolutely. I, I love what you said. I think that that has been the guiding light now and, and the new leading definition of alignment is that, that our values are the gatekeepers to our alignment, as I think Peta Kelly said in her recent book, uh, Earth is Hiring. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. This has been amazing. And I think we definitely deserve to reconvene and do maybe a specific part two or a, or a, or a co-creative training on something because we absolutely have some synchronicity here. And you have just amazing value with stories and things that you've seen around so many of these topics. So I want to give a huge thank you on part of me and all the listeners. And I cannot wait until we can reconvene and do this again soon, Dr. John. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. My only regret is my lousy internet connectivity. It's okay. We're going to dance around it because without the contrast, we can't know what we do want to refine, right? That's right. All right, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for being on. Sounds great. Thank Cheers. you.